the people who we try to be and the people who we teach to meditate become more self-aware. And because they're more self-aware, they're more aware of others. And it creates harmony in the world. That was Mark Shargell. And this is Energy Matters. Welcome to Energy Matters, exploring awakening to your authentic self and finding purpose through mind, body, and soul. With your hosts, Cody Edner and David Gandelman. Brought to you by intuitivevision.net and groundedmind.com. All right. Well, hello and welcome everybody to Energy Matters. I'm sitting here with my good friend, Mark Shargell, who we're going to talk to today. I'm pretty excited about this conversation. We were just out skiing all day in the lovely mountains of Colorado. So we're back in the warm, cozy mountain chalet. <laughs> and, I'm, and as always, I've got uh, David Gandelman, my co-host here. Hi, David. Hey, hey, wish I was there. <laughs> I know, you know, later, a few months from now, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, Mark, it's great. We've been wanting to get you on the podcast for a while. It's great to finally have you on and have your presence known. Mark's been a, a longtime friend of mine from my spiritual work going back, oh goodness, 30 some odd years, I think uh, we've known each other now. And I've been wanting to have him on the podcast. And I kept telling David, hey, I've, I've got a great friend. He's really dynamic guy. I got some interesting things to talk about that I want to get on the podcast. And David's like, who is this guy? Who is this guy? And then as we were researching his bio and checking things out today, David just realized that he had met Mark five years ago or so, seven, eight I, years ago. Yeah, I think it was seven, close to seven years ago, right, Mark? In Something Hawaii, like of all places. So <laughs> maybe <laughs> we could start and talk about that clandestine meeting. I, yeah, I wonder how differently we remember it, Mark, because I was a beginning student at a meditation school on the Big Island, and you came up to say hi to, I think it was, you knew the, the director of the school at the time, and everyone was busy, and so they sent me out to talk to you, and we had this long, great conversation, and I remember thinking, I, I really like this guy. <laughs> Who is this guy? <laughs> and when Cody sent me your website just yesterday to look through your bio and, and look at your work. I looked at your picture and nothing. And then right before we got on this podcast, I looked at your bio again. I was like, wait a minute. We had a long conversation in Hawaii seven years ago. So it's good to see you again. Well, thank you. It's great to be with both of you. I've been listening to your podcast and very impressed with the way you've been getting information out to a broader public about the kind of work we've both been doing for a very long time. And I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so I don't really remember what year that meeting was, but the woman who started the institute where you were learning meditation and then learning, to, I guess, to teach meditation and I are were old friends from when we were both students, which was years before that. And yeah, I just wandered up to say hi and see if there's anybody I knew there. And there wasn't, but there was this really interesting guy named David who was, <laughs> I guess, what, in your second or maybe third year of learning. And yeah, not even. Yeah, yeah, you asked me a bunch of questions and 
I tried to act like a wise old sage, but I, I <laughs> thought, you know, this is a guy who's going places. He's uh, he's going to stick around in this work. Oh, uh, thank you. Yeah, that was cool. I think they call this kind of experience in, in the East karma. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah, so so Mark, you um you of course been doing spirituality for many, many years. You were into the spiritual work before I came along, but then we became friends shortly after I had started learning and training and, and pursuing meditation and that kind of work. But you kind of have a multifaceted path, a pretty interesting path, really, I think. You started your spiritual work pretty early. But I was 19 years old when I went to uh, my first meditation class. Wow. And committed to a year-long training program year two years after that, 1980. Just gives you an idea of how long I've been a practitioner and I've been teaching. This is my 30th year now as a teacher. Oh, cool. Yeah. So my first, uh, my first awareness of, of Cody was... Uh, he was about the age, he was about 19. I was already well into my 20s. And he could already do anything, everything. And I thought, who is this wunderkinder? So we're now both gray-haired old guys. <laughs> <laughs> proving proving yeah, we still got it born. on the ski slopes together. Yeah, <laughs> trying to. <laughs> trying to keep up with teenagers. That's right. Yeah. And failing. And when you guys met, I hadn't even been born yet. <laughs> oh, I was just a twinkle in a couple immigrants' eyes on the East Coast. <laughs> so, so Mark, before you found meditation, what were your, your pursuits? Because you were in college at the time, is that? I was in college when I took that, that uh, initial meditation class, yeah. And as it happens, that, w- that summer, I spent the summer taking classes in pursuit of my biology degree at uh, Stanford University at their marine station on the coast in Pacific Grove, California, which is right next door to Monterey. I was doing scientific diving and learning about marine ecosystems. And every Saturday while I was doing that summer course, I would drive up to what was at the time called the San Jose Psychic Institute and taking my beginning meditation class. So the two of the three great vocations that have been the the forces in my life, I started at exactly the same time. Oh, very interesting. Very interesting. So what's the third, and, uh, what's the third vocation? Okay, uh, computers. I'm a, I'm a propeller head uh, techie guy. <laughs> and uh, my, the, first, the first serious job I had after graduating from Stanford was at a little startup called Apple Computer. Um, and I did some arcane code writing in the marketing and sales department there until I left in pursuit of even bigger pots of gold in 83 <laughs> with the, the, the perfect timing that only an inexperienced person in his early middle 20s at that point can have. I walked away from Apple the year before they released the first Macintosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you didn't miss much. It's all good. <laughs> well, the funny thing is I, I would go out for pizza at this joint a couple blocks away with some of the, the, the absolute geniuses that were designing the Mac and its first operating system. 
Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, names that you would know, Burl Smith, Andy Hertzfeld, a guy named Don Denman, who wrote the first basic language. And so, yeah, I mean, we just you're all, you're hang around together and eat pizza yeah. and watch them just kill it on the video machines. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you left Apple in, in, in pursuit of what, like you say, your, your kind of vocation or maybe spiritual path. No, actually, I, I took that job at Apple because the, this, the, what I really understood as my path, not that I had done that much planning of a life pursuit as a 22-year-old, it was, well, I want to do this year-long spiritual program in meditation and learning how to see auras. And in order to do that, I'm going to need some money and a place to live. And so I want to get a job. And the coolest job that I could possibly find was at this company that was making a computer that you could have on your desk. And I had been programming computers at college. And the idea that I could have a computer that was mine was totally compelling. And so you know, I, I actually decided I wanted to work for Apple about six months before I got hired there. Oh, interesting. So, so that, that's... You, uh... No, 10 months before. 10 months before. Yeah, wow. so that job was, was really just to fund your spiritual path. That's what I thought I was yeah. doing at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. that has turned into a, a lifelong career in the technical business. And I did um, various kinds of coding. I went... After I left Apple... I, I left Apple to take a vice president of marketing position for a software startup, knowing as I did as a 24-year-old that every startup was going to make millions and millions of dollars. So it was about nine months later, that folded, and I <laughs> went back to the West Coast where I knew I belonged and started freelance coding, and that was how I made my living for well over a decade. Oh, um, cool. And Mark, you're also a, a diver, right? Uh, well, as I said, that same summer, 1978, that I took my first meditation class, I was learning about marine ecosystems by literally diving into them and learning how to do simple marine science and learning about everything that I was swimming through while I was, uh, while I was underwater. And the spiritual work and the underwater experience were things that I developed pretty profound passions for both. And so they remain major parts of my life to this day. Does, does the underwater so, work, the diving, that experience have a spiritual sense and essence in it to you? What's your, what's your feeling when you're I, diving? I have, I have two answers for you. Mm -hmm. So the first one is totally experiential. And as, as both of you know, there are places you can get to in meditation where y you have this sense of great connection with yourself, maybe with I don't, I'm, now language fails me, call it the essence of the cosmos, or you could call it perhaps God. And those are places you can go in meditation. And I know you have. And I know you've taken other people as I have. And there is some of that experience that is available underwater. There are a couple of photographs that I have managed to craft that I think convey something of that experience visually. And I'll describe one of them for you because it's, uh, it's, it's in my mind. And I, I uh, want to 
big prize in a photography contest with it once. I was in a kelp forest, I should say. I was about 40, 50 feet under the surface of a kelp forest off San Clemente Island in Southern California. And something about the way the light hits the water and the kelp in Southern California is not replicated anywhere else I've been. And I dive in kelp forests, oh, I don't know, a couple dozen times a year near my home in Central California in the Monterey Bay region. But the light that you get in Southern California is a little more golden and a little bit more blue as the water, the, the, the turquoise water filters it. And there was this canopy of kelp above me and stalks of kelp vertically in front of me. It's kind of like swimming through a forest as if you're have, as if there's no gravity, right? Because you can, you can be a submarine and ascend or descend. You can, it's like flying 50 feet up in the trees in a forest because you can swim ab ab above the bottom. And the sun's coming through the kelp, and there's this one piece of kelp in front of me that's growing in this, in this filtered sunlight. And kelp behind it, and sunlight streaming through, and I just, I just stopped dead and said, I'm glad I have a camera in my hand. This is the moment. And I took the shot four or five or six different times because I knew this was going to be a keeper. And... That one, it's, it's some people talk about that sense as being in a cathedral, except a cathedral of nature, or feeling the spiritual sense of uh, the natural world. For those who believe in a in a creative God who built the universe that we live in, it's about as a direct experience of that as I think one can get. Hmm. Beautiful. Wow, very cool. We, and that's something we didn't mention about your passion of uh, in marine biology and in diving is that you're also a photographer. You don't just dive, but you try to capture the essence of that underwater experience and share it with the world. And I have seen lots of your work, and we'll, we'll share Mark's website, but there's some beautiful, beautiful pieces of art that you've created. No, thanks. I'll... Uh... I'll give you a link to the photograph I was just describing. Yeah, great. We'll put that in the show notes. So, Mark, can you tell us a little bit of, well, first of all, just to recap your bio. So you studied science at Stanford. You trained as a psychic. You worked for Apple in the early 1980s, and you dive to the bottom of the ocean and take pictures. <laughs> that's pretty uh, that's Yeah, pretty cool. and I'm married, and I have a 13-year-old son just to keep me out of oh. trouble. <laughs> Very cool. Can you tell us a little bit about your meditation practice? And yeah, let's start. Actually, can you tell us a bit about what you teach and where you teach and what that all looks like? Okay. So being having the bio that you just recounted quite accurately, I'm either a remarkable Renaissance man or have not yet learned, figured out what I'm going to do when I grow up. And I'm not sure if this <laughs> is more true. But on the uh, the spiritual side of my life, I was a student of a guy named Louis Bostwick, who I know was the teacher of many of the people you've already had on this podcast, um, or in some cases, the teachers of teachers that you had on this podcast, and trained and taught, as I said, for 36, 37 years now. About five years ago, a group of colleagues and I in San Jose, California, founded a new church called the Community Church for Spiritual Growth. And within that church, we have a new institution 
whose name is a historical reference to where I took my first meditation class 37 years ago, and it's once again called the San Jose Psychic Institute. And there are websites uh, both for the church and its teaching institute, and I'll give you those uh, web addresses as well so you can put them in the show sure. notes too. So I teach there. Occasionally I teach a beginning meditation class or a beginning class in spiritual healing, and I convey to people who've never had meditation experiences before or people who've been wandering the world in pursuit of their spiritual truth, spiritual tools for learning how to manipulate energy, know their own energy better, and learn who they really are, learn to know themselves. That was Those things sort of describe what I did initially. I also teach our students who are in our year, year to year and a half long program, which we call the clairvoyant program. They learn how to perceive not only their own energy, but also the energy of other people and become aware of the aura that they emanate and the auras that other people emanate. And Mark, so people kind of listening who who haven't heard of uh, a psychic institute before who are like, whoa, do, do you guys have crystal balls? Do you see the future? Uh, what is it? Yeah. What does it mean to go to a program like yours and learn to open up into somewhat your own intuitive abilities. Um, when somebody comes to your school for the first time, for example, where would you start them and what does it look like? We would start them in a chair. <laughs> Everybody sits down and gets a little quiet and doing this in San Jose, California, which is, you know, at the southern end of Silicon Valley, everybody's busy and everybody's thinking really hard and in pursuit of um, physical success. And we have a little storefront building with a calendar on the wall and some posters and a whole lot of reasonably comfortable chairs. And everybody sits down and inside what we've done within this building is to create a space that is different than Silicon Valley. It is a spiritual center. It's, it's walking through the door, but walking into a place where people, by walking in, are committing to devoting their awareness to paying attention to themselves, paying attention to self-awareness, to the energy of the earth and the energy of the universe, and finding out what their place is in the meeting of those two things. So sort of conceptually speaking, that's what it is to, to enter the institute where I teach. Literally, all you do is sit down in a chair and start by taking a deep breath and noticing how your body feels and connecting yourself energetically, spiritually, to planet Earth. We call it grounding, something I know that both of you have taught many, many times, and that's the first step. But the the woo-woo stuff, the what the heck, when I was talking about auras, is a direct evolution from the, the, the experience and the awareness that comes from meditation, because after developing a meditation practice for probably, in your case, David, because I know you're a really quick study a few months, 
or in my case, because I was a very slow, <laughs> I, I was a remedial reader, <laughs> so to speak, but it took me a couple of years of meditation to get to the point where my awareness of my own aura was something I was willing to look a little bit farther outside and, and notice somebody else's energy and pay attention to that and develop my ability to perceive that energy directly. But I'll tell you what, the first time somebody said, hey, come in here into this aura reading and sit here with these people doing it, I thought they were nuts. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, I totally did. Especially when they read past lives. Maybe oh, right. my God. <laughs> They've been making it all up. They're absolutely just self-deception self or something. I don't know what it was. And what, what changed your mind? The experiences of meditation that I had had been so valuable that I just wanted some more of what's next. And in the San Jose Psychic Institute in the late 70s and early 80s, what was next was starting to look at other people's auras as well as my own. And so I decided, to, well, I, I, have to, I have to back up a step and say that what I did in order, coming from Stanford and studying biology and psychology, which were my degree fields there, I was a pretty hard science-minded guy. And I also knew that there was a wider world. There was this thing called parapsychology or extrasensory perception. Um, but there was also a spiritual life that I was pursuing and hadn't really found anything satisfying. And I figured that even though the science that I was studying denied that any of that stuff had an existence, that I would apply the scientific method as, I had been, as it had been taught to me. So that if I could gather direct experiential evidence of some kind of spiritual reality, then that was enough for me because... That was all the proof that there really could be. And when I started to sit down to meditate, it changed me. The, the first great experience that I had, this is an anecdote I've told over and over, but the guy who was teaching my meditation class, who was this guy with a twang from Oklahoma, that, and just not the kind of person that I was, had ever been around, because I was, I'd grown up in Ohio and living in California, and there's this Oki, and and he told me to do a couple things, and and is there pain? And I said, well, actually, yeah, I'm having a rare experience of a slight headache. No big deal. It's not bothering me, but yeah, my there's a little pain in my head. It's all right. Um, so use your use your meditation tools and and allow that pain to leave. Okay, fine. And he changed the subject for a while and started teaching about something else. And and I had done the exercise that he had recommended. And then about 10 minutes later, he came back to the original topic and said, now that pain that you were experiencing, check on that now. What's, uh, is it there? What's in? My headache was gone. So by use of these really simple meditation, I mean, it was probably the third or fourth class I was in, uh, really simple tools, I cured my own headache. That was, by any science I knew, impossible, and yet it had happened. So that was most definitely worth further investigation. So I stuck with the meditation class and then I took another one and then another and then, and, and, and then I was at the point where, okay, so sit in this aura reading. And I knew that was bullshit. It had to be. <laughs> and after a while, I found that there was such a thing as understanding somebody else 
on a fairly profound intuitive level that it was actually possible to do. And I, to my great surprise, began to do it. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> and, uh, I believe it was around the time you were at Stanford. Wasn't there, didn't they have the Stanford Research Institute where they were also studying uh, parapsychology? Okay, so so this is another great story. And you're absolutely right. It was a couple miles up the road. It was called the Stanford Research Institute in the next town north from campus. And it's still there. They changed the name to just the initials SRI. But it was pretty famous at that time for doing experiments in something that you've covered in another one of your podcast episodes, remote viewing. Mm. And they were that's doing right. remote With viewing. Exper- cats. Yeah. yeah, that's right. They were doing experiments in remote, remote viewing, trying to spy on the, the evil empire of the Soviet Union. And I took a seminar at Stanford called parapsychology. And it was quite comedic. I was a student in both biology and psychology there, and this seminar in parapsychology, the psychology department would have nothing to do with. They wouldn't even let the thing in the psychology building, so we had to have it in the common room of one of the dorms. And for the final class of that seminar, this guy came down from Berkeley it was the great buildup to the end of this parapsychology seminar that I was taking as a freshman, I think, that the real psychics were coming. And this guy named Louis Bostwick, who little did I expect about five years later became my teacher, came down with what to me looked for all the world like a circus. And a lot of it, I thought at the time, was nothing more than hucksterism. And at the same time, this entourage of about 40 people, on average only about five years older than I was, and I think I was 18 years old at the time, seemed to have some kind of calm and wisdom that did not match their age. It matched people quite a bit older, and yet there it was. And a lot of what they did made no sense, but... Whatever that wisdom and calm and that they had, I knew I wanted. And I had been looking around at various disciplines of meditation. I read a couple of books that made no sense at all to me. But these people clearly had something going on, and they had a class in meditation. And so my curiosity led me there. Ultimately, I'm teen years later to talking with you now. Very cool. Wow. <laughs> I uh, I used to go on YouTube and just look at those Stanford Research Institute videos with, uh, I think it was y- Uri Geller. Uri Geller was bending spoons was with his mind. <laughs> That's right. It was one of the famous experience uh, experiments from the mid-70s, and, and that was one of the things I studied in that seminar. Yeah, and if you YouTube uh, Yuri Geller's SRI, there's some interesting videos from from back then in the 70s that are available. Pretty cool to watch, actually. Yeah. Yes. So, so Mark, you've you've had quite the journey, and just kind of coming back a little bit to 
your spiritual teaching. So it's 37 years after that experience, and uh, you've been teaching for a long, long time. Have you noticed, we've asked this to a couple other teachers on the show, have you noticed a shift in the kind of students that you've had in the energy and the consciousness and the awareness of kind of more intuitive abilities from now to then? What What is your experience over the decades? Okay, so let me answer that one in, in two ways also. One, one very subjective and one more directly answering the question you asked me. Yes, to your to your question. What we do, I mean, the three of us on this microphone right now, has become much more part of the mainstream culture. When mm-hmm. I sat down for that meditation class, it was a weird sort of countercultural thing to do. As I said, the psychology department where I was pursuing one of my degrees would have nothing to do with any of that weird stuff. Nobody studied meditators scientific in terms of techniques of Western science because they would insist that there was nothing there, that there was, it was not worthy of scientific endeavor. In the time since, many things have changed. The, <laughs> my, my distant relatives who are clinical psychologists now talk about mindfulness all the time, practice it themselves. The, let's see, my sister-in-law's second grader is taught mindfulness in his elementary school. Um, and when I started to hear this word and I inquired about what it was, my, my psychologist relatives started telling me about it and I said, oh, that, well, I've been doing that for 35 years now. (laughs) I guess unbeknownst to me, apparently I am an expert. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought that was, that was quite entertaining. So the, the other, and of course, people who come into our institute now in San Jose understand that there is a wide variety of people who will offer to guide them in these practices. And I guess we have the ability to, to teach with a great deal of certainty and experience. And when they have questions, we know how to answer them because we've done most of that stuff or watched other people try it. The other answer I wanted to give you, the subjective one, is that one of the influences of my spiritual practice on my life, I realized after Cody said, hey, come on the podcast and I want to talk about both your your marine science and your marine conservation and your spirituality and, and what's the connection. And I thought about that for a while. And what I realized is that because of the self-awareness that meditation and spiritual practice gave me, I could not help but develop a greater awareness of the world around me. And the part of that world that I was already most deeply connected to was, one, the people that I teach, and two, the ocean that I love to dive into. And so giving both of those opportunities for greater health and well-being you know one is teaching meditation and the other is marine conservation um and you wouldn't think they go together but for marie for me they're inseparable cool hmm. yeah i wanted to segue over to that that very question that you just 
started to to answer and, and just kind of explored that a little bit because when I think of meditation, one one way that uh, we might describe that as we move into a space of meditation and energy awareness is it's it's turning our attention into this inner ecology to taking care of this inner um, aspect of our, our our inner world, right? And and to cleaning up the messes that might be there, <laughs> to letting go of some of the, the the pain that might be there, the destruction that might have gotten uh, had caused. One example of which was that little headache I had. In my right, meditation Ex- exactly. Class. Yep. Stress, you know, so negative self talk and worrying doubt, about the future, worries, yeah, that worrying kind about of stuff. money. Right. So meditation is is like taking care of that that inner world and and that world that we live in in our heads in our bodies. But when I think about marine life or the bigger world ecology and the conservation that you promote, it, it really is about taking care of that system, right? That ecosystem. So in meditation, there's this inner system that we're learning to become more aware of and aware of how things interconnect. And then in this outer world, which is very interconnected, and yet most of the destruction we see in the outer world is because people don't realize the interconnectedness of it, right? There's the separation, which is, there's this reflection to me because inwardly where I find pain is where there's separation, right? From self, from the divine. Outwardly where we see destruction being created in the world is where there is separation from an awareness of how things are interconnected. So let me let me first say, Cody, that you're as sharp and as eloquent as you were when I first met you, because <laughs> I think that whole thing was very, <laughs> very well put and, and absolutely correct. When I give talks to groups on marine conservation, I talk about exactly that interconnectedness of things that that everything really is part everything that's alive is part of an ecosystem and so i just tell them that whatever i said that they got all they have to do is walk away with three words the three words are it's all connected and so if you want to talk internally about the human ecosystem of any one person we have lots of different parts in our lives and they're all connected and the stress you walk out of work with, you'll walk into your house with, or maybe uh, if it's night for the class, you'll walk into your meditation class with that stress, or you'll walk out to your date with your honey with that stress, and you know there are going to be consequences. And if you're not connected with who you really are, then you're going to find that you're behaving in a way that doesn't reflect what your real values are. When we disconnect from the greater ecosystem called planet Earth that we all depend on to stay alive, and I'll, I'll explain that in a minute, then it's possible to do tremendously destructive things. All you have to do is walk out the front door to look at some of them. And because of the awareness I'm talking about, I realized that I couldn't stand to be part of the problem. I had to be part of the solution. So, and, and the problems being overwhelmingly huge and clearly beyond the control of one guy, I brought into practice another pithy little aphorism, which is think globally, act locally. So I got involved in a California state marine conservation initiative and 
de, de, um, volunteered uh, a tremendous amount of my own time, pushing as hard as I could for the most biologically and ecologically beneficial implementation of this initiative that we could get. And we certainly didn't succeed on every point, but we did okay. And as a result of that, there are areas designated in the ocean along the coast of California now that function akin to national parks or state parks. They are places where some of the most spectacular underwater scenery that California has are preserved for both its biological value and also for human appreciation. So these are the underwater equivalents of Yosemite and you know, the great redwood forests in the Sierra, or if you think of national parks, Yellowstone and Bryce Canyon. There are special places, even though the surface of the water looks gray and foreboding and uniform, if you go under that surface, it is anything but. And there are underwater Yosemites and underwater Bryce Canyons. And wow. we designated and mapped out many of them and the state of California, in a remarkable bit of wisdom and foresight, set them aside as places where people were not going to injure the ecosystem by any kind of habitat degradation or direct removal of anything that's alive. Wow, that's great. And what do you call those? The technical term for that, well, well on land you call it a park, right. and in the ocean you call it a marine reserve. Marine reserve. And marine yeah, reserves, as I said, function very much like our, our most valued parks on land function. You're not right. going to cut down the trees in the, in the national park or shoot the deer. And in a marine reserve, you're not going to cut the kelp or catch the fish. But I have been privileged to dive into many of the places that have been designated as marine reserves, and I have begun to watch the slow but very gratifying process of watching the life in these things increase, recover from the damage we didn't even realize we had really done, and become more diverse and return to something closer to its state that it had before it was altered by human beings. And we were talking wow. about that the other day, about the recovery time. You were talking a little bit about how long it takes sometimes. Yeah. To... So one of the aspects of this, uh, this conservation initiative of creating park-like areas in the ocean is because the water off the coast of California is somewhere between cool and frickin' freezing, um, things grow slowly. And in fact, one of, the, one of the great sort of conundrums of the environmental movement is that everybody looks around at the world that they're born into and goes, this is normal, this is the way it's supposed to look. And so the changes in ecosystems that we induce happen relatively slowly. I have my own idea of what the California ocean that I began to dive in in the late 70s is quote, supposed to, unquote, look like. And there have been some fairly significant shifts. The people that I dive with now, who are mostly a great deal younger than I am, had have been diving for, oh, five years maybe, 
think that this is the way it is. This is just normal. And I start to talk to them about species that I used to look at and go, you ever seen one of those? And they go, no, what's that? So well, it used to be all over the place. Really? I want to see one. Sorry. I can't show you one. <laughs> um, we'd have to, we'll have to hunt to find one. There, there may be a few, but some of these things are, are coming back. So the changes happen slowly and the recovery happens slowly because things grow slowly in this, in this cool water. So these marine reserves that I participated in, in creating and mapping about 10 years ago were at the time expected to be legally in place for a very long time because biologically they were going to have to be in place for a very long time in order to gain their full benefit. One of the really gratifying things that happened just five years after they were designated legally is an initial scientific assessment was done to say, hey, does it look like it's starting to work at all? Because everybody knew that after five years was just not enough time to see very much shift in the, uh, the, the um, measurements in, in actual you know, collectible data. And people went out and counted things and looked at fish, and what they found out was that in the newly created marine reserves, they could already see the improvements in the, de in the directions that were hoped for and expected, and that was actually beginning to work better and faster than we had even hoped for. So that was tremendously gratifying. That's, That's great. great. Yeah. So you're gonna have to take Cody and I diving one day. <laughs> I would love to, and I, I, I just all of this stuff that we're talking about is is, you know, when I was doing that work in oh, like oh five six seven, I spent just I did very little diving because I was busy doing politics and it wasn't much fun, but it was work for future generations mostly. I mean, I knew I would see some of the the benefits of what I was doing, but I knew that mostly it was going to be my kid if he ever started diving or, you know, your, your kids. But yeah, we'll go diving in some of these places and I'll point to some fish and I'll say, I didn't used to see those. <laughs> Very cool. Let's go somewhere exotic, right? Because you dive all around, all over the world. Oh yeah. Uh, so the most recent foreign place I was with the Galapagos Islands and they have done something very similar to what we did in California. They have marine reserves there. They have pretty significant limits on fishing everywhere, but certain areas, as we've done in California, that are completely no-take. And I went, this was a return trip that I did in 2016, 20 years after the, the last time I had been there, which was 96. And I was very pleased to see that I couldn't, without with just my eyes, you know, without doing rigorous science, which I was certainly in no position to do, but it looked like things looked about the same, which was terrific because what I found there was, I, I mean, I could describe this underwater, I don't know, somewhere between Wonderland and Thrills a Minute Amusement Park. I was swimming amongst nine foot long hammerhead sharks. I was nose to nose with a sea turtle on several occasions, sometimes for minutes at a time, and then cruising by above this reef, there would be 40-foot-long whale sharks, and when the whale shark came by, all of us who were diving in this group together would just blast off of the reef in, in pursuit of the whale shark, who couldn't have cared less. And uh, I took a few pictures and a little bit of short video footage, and but, I mean, that was, you know, talk about awe-inspiring and... and um, 
you know, the sense that there is really something greater than you. Well, when you're swimming alongside a 40 foot long whale shark who just doesn't even care that you're there, <laughs> it's very clear that there's something much bigger and <laughs> because you're mm. next to it. <laughs> Mark, I, when I lived in Hawaii, I had a friend who was a physicist at Stanford and he would come to the Big Island multiple times a year just to swim with the dolphins. And he would say that he would communicate with them. He was a spiritual guy. He, of course, he couldn't tell his uh, his co-workers at Stanford. But <laughs> no, because our Hawaii science would... rules out all of that kind of experience. <laughs> exactly. Or, or used he to, said, I should he, say. Yeah. And he said he would telepathically, in a sense, communicate with the dolphins. And they, he, he said they really understood he, each other. Have you had that experience with creatures in the sea or otherwise where you really find yourself on a kind of spiritual level communicating with them? Um, I cannot say that I have. And I've known several people who, like your physicist friend, have talked to me about that and, you know, asked me about my experiences in that regard. But no, my underwater experiences are much more those of the the marine scientists that I began mm -hmm training. You know, I, I took or the, the early steps of training that the other marine scientists have been. I have become what I would call, I'd call myself a marine naturalist since I have not pursued marine science as a vocation, but rather the appreciation of the underwater world and communicating my experiences, mostly visually through my photographs to people who, like you, haven't yet had that experience and in case they never do, my my relationship with that stuff is not so much telepathic as it is as somebody who tremendously appreciates both the aesthetics and the biological importance. Does it awaken something in you, though, when you see that level of beauty or you're confronted with something like that? Does it awaken? Obviously, there's an appreciation that you have but do you feel some kind of a spiritual awakening or connection, or is it meditative in nature? Well, I, I think it must have awakened something because I've devoted the last 35 years of my life in part also to underwater photography and using that photography as a way to promote the conservation politics I was talking about earlier. I used my pictures as a way to progress the, the political process and had some success with that. And in fact, after I was no longer involved in directly in the policy discussions, I continued to contribute to them aesthetically, as I had done when I was directly involved, by creating a series of coffee table books that were built on my photography and the photography of some other people whose work I admired to package the marine life in the regions of California that were undergoing this marine reserve designation process. And so I created books to say, well, if you don't, if this is all abstract to you, if you haven't been underwater, here's what it looks like. Here's what you might be protecting. And each of these books has a whole rainbow of marine species pictured in it, the, the pages are dominated by, every page has photographs on it and got the highest quality color printing that I could. And, you know, it's, it's pretty lavish looking stuff, but 
on people who are involved in the decision-making process at the time, um, uh, all indications are it had an impact. So now, you know, the books remain. They were not written about politics. They were written about marine life. And, you know, they're, they're this sort of aesthetic uh, touchstone mm. for people who are interested in that relationship with the ocean. I could see that Mark, connection. You... Yeah. Yeah, oh. go ahead, David. I was going to say, Mark, do you dream... I do, and I have had. I, I used to work very consciously on my dreams. I've. I, I wouldn't say I've abandoned that, but I've suspended it for the last several years. Just too much. It, it took a lot of energy to do, but I have had. I've had some dreams of meditating, that have been some of the most remarkable meditation experiences I've ever had, and I've had several dreams of diving, that have been some pretty amazing diving experiences. So I don't know if I answered your question, but yes. Yeah. Oh, I was, I was going to ask, is being underwater like dreaming? Is it almost like a different dimension down there? Because uh, I've had the experience of like dreams being very watery in nature. Sure. My dreams, and I think probably most people's, have a certain surreal component in that Things can shift. The impossible can happen. You can jump off the ground and float for minutes on end in a dream. You can get out of a car and, and find that you're in a bathtub in a dream. I mean, the impossible can happen. Underwater, in one sense, it's very real. It's, it's the reality of life. And, and you're totally, and forgive the pun, you're immersed in it, you know, literally. And at the same time, it is a reality that is utterly different than walking the streets of any city that any of us lives in. So, you know, our day-to-day -day thing has to do with cars and, and, and cell phones and going to work and stores and, you know, material that has been built according to the way humans build you know, rectangles, straight lines. It's, you know, it's the way we organize physicality. The ocean is a physicality that has not been organized by humanity hardly at all. So everything is, if it's not a rock, then it's flexible. The, the, the kelp forest that forms the basis of the marine environment that I spend most of my time in, instead of being vertical and erect like a skyscraper and utterly rigid, it all sways with the waves. Everything sort of bends and, and, and curves and gives. And um, I guess there is a certain spiritual inspiration in that, in that you know, I realize that I am, you know, some people say, you know, you're just a visitor here. Um, you can't stay long. And that's certainly true. But it's so much a part of my life that it's, it's, it is a kind of a home for me. And I don't know if that, you know, profoundly emotional connection to something that one values deeply, if you want to call that spiritual, I guess you can. And in that sense, for me, it's, it's quite spiritual. Wow. Cool. I, uh, I recently was teaching a class at, at Cornell for a, I was teaching a meditation there and before I taught it, I met with the 
uh, kind of coordinator of the group. And he asked me, what is the purpose of dreams and why do you have them? And what do they mean? And what do they mean in your life? If you were to explain that to my group here at Cornell, and I thought, wow, that is a really deep, great question that, um, that, uh, I'd have to think about and reflect on as, even as a meditation teacher, have you taught classes on dream work and what would you say to someone who asked you that question? I haven't. And although I've pursued my own dreams, as I said, you know, for a while, and then I've suspended that for now, I did it as a way to connect my non-waking consciousness to my meditation consciousness. That was mm -hmm. a, a bridge that I was working on building. I have not done that yet. I hope that before I die, maybe I still will. If I don't, well, then I've got it queued up for the next lifetime if I have one. <laughs> but, you know, the funny thing about – there's two very funny things. And, I mean, just I'm kind of forehead smacking things about the, your question. The first one is that you said, I'm teaching this class in meditation at Cornell. <laughs> if I just step back into my undergraduate experience in college in the late 70s, the idea that anybody at a respected university would be teaching a class in meditation would have been scandalous in that era. <laughs> yeah. and, and here I am, you know, seven years after running into you outside the meditation school in Hawaii, and you've been lecturing at Cornell. I think it's <laughs> awesome. Um, so so yeah, that for me is... Shifting, a, definitely. Yeah, gobsmacked. Um, I was going to say, the reason I ask is, you know, I had this group there of, of college students and you really reminded me of it because uh, you talked so much about your college experience and how that was when you got into meditation. And I had this big group of college students and a bunch of them ended up coming to a dream workshop that I taught. And most of their questions were very kind of spiritually oriented. They were open to it. They were really interested in how to work with energy and their emotions and how to let go of other people's energy. And they were very interested in the practical side of the tools that maybe a lot of people out there, when they hear someone say, I went to a psychic school, they think that's, you know, very woo woo and out there. And just like, I'm not touching that like the way your experience started. But then when they get into the actual practice of the meditation, they go, whoa, this is powerful. And I've been looking for this for a long time. And they, I, I've seen so much kind of enthusiasm come up in people when you explain it in a way that they can digest. And I, when you were talking about your college experiences, I just kept thinking back to my most recent experience, which was with these kids there. And it's, it is interesting to hear your life story and, and notice the shift that's happened from the 1970s to now. But I would say, and me and Cody have talked about this a bit on the podcast before, it kind of all started where you were and when you were there yeah, in the I, 70s in Berkeley. Yeah. It did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, your follow-up brings me back to the, to the piece of my response that I wanted to give you a moment ago, which is that one of the things that I studied was and this is in my undergraduate years, was the then infant uh, area of sleep research. And people were literally asking then, why do we sleep? Why do we dream? And we still don't have a decent answer, as your question points up. And it remains a tremendous 
area of scientific inquiry. But the, the dream work I know, part of what I got involved in in working on those dreams unintentionally, much to my surprise, was finding out that usually there's a symbolic aspect. Sometimes in my dreams would appear visual puns, things that once I realized that what my dream self was, quote, talking about was being represented symbolically in a way that just busted me up laughing that, no, I didn't realize that that was talking with such connected to that. And there were emotional aspects to it that in some cases were fairly profound. Hmm. And there are most definitely connections with meditative experience that are parallel. That, you know, I talked about learning meditation to increase my own self-knowledge, to find out who the real me is, what are, what's my, what is my nature and my temperament, and more importantly, what deflects me or distracts me from manifesting my real self, you know, what sidetracks me, what gets in my way, what are the stumbling blocks within me that I maybe don't even recognize. And meditation has been a path to answering those questions. And what's been, I think, even maybe equally cool for me is in teaching that stuff, watching other people have those same discoveries and being part of uh, a catalyst to unlock the same answers for them. Something that stands out to me, um, just going back to that, that link between kind of our inner ecology and the ecological systems in the world is that um, very often when we look at ourselves and, and this exploration inwardly to, through meditation, perhaps towards enlightenment or towards some level of improvement, it can seem like it might take forever. Like there's so much to do. But just like you s mentioned when you set aside that... Well, 35 marine... years isn't all that long. Yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> there's a difference between getting, you know, <laughs> initial change and then pursuing it as a path. But, but my point being, when, when you set aside that ecological, that uh, marine refuge, you know, there is this long arc for healing, but you saw things happen much faster than you maybe anticipated. It's a wonderful analogy. And in, I think it's something to bring to the forefront or make a point of in talking to people about starting a meditation practice is change can happen really fast, right? It, I mean, there is a long arc for growth because it's a path. It's a way of being. It's like an art that you want to practice, mm -hmm. right? It's It's got all these wonderful benefits. But so many changes can happen for us positive changes, healing changes very quickly. And and back to kind of somewhere David started was what what is kind of your meditative practice or, or where would you, uh, what point would you put on meditation for someone out there that's going, well, where do I start or how do I start? Not so much as a place, but as an idea. Okay. So I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you two answers again. I keep doing this. The first one is that the, the students who I'm teaching, you know, walk in the door fresh, never done anything like this before, but they said this, there's a, there has to be a place in my life for this. I need something. And, and I say, give it five minutes a day. Mm -hmm. And here's, here's some tools to use. 
give yourself, you know, the, the building that I teach in, I said we, we created a spiritual sanctuary in the middle of Silicon Valley. And I, I tell them to take five minutes a day and create their own time slice sanctuary in the middle of their overcrowded, overwhelmed, busy day to, to, to create whatever it is they want, the, a sense of calm that they don't have or a sense of groundedness, if you will. And that's a fantastic starting point. I, I, I told you that that headache that I had my third week as a meditation student myself, and I somehow cured my headache. And you know, that was after three weeks of fooling around. So, yeah. So now here, the second answer, and I'll give you the sort of the more intimidating answer, is after my years of practice, what I really like to do is sit down in a chair for about an hour and a half to two and go deep, deep, deep and find all of the stuff within me that doesn't really belong there, isn't really me, so to speak, and get to a place where I'm far within myself. And it takes me, because I'm a slow study, 45 minutes or an hour to get to that spot. But when I do, it's deeply satisfying. I just, you know, everything is where it's supposed to be, and I'm not anxious, and I'm not in a hurry anymore. And I spend a lot of time in a hurry. <laughs> Very cool. And Mark, do you do... I was just going to ask, do you do intuitive readings for people? Oh, yeah. And I, I do them and I've taught them, I've taught other people to do them for years. So, yes, yes. And, and, and so for some people listening to this, if they wanted to kind of connect with you and have one or see where you teach classes, where could they find that? So uh, sanjosepsychic.org is probably the, the best place to go for the introductory classes that my colleagues and I in San Jose, California teach. I occasionally do work by some kind of telepresence like Skype or something with students or give readings that way. Mm. And then I can also, as I said, I'll also give you the web addresses of the places where my marine work is posted online. Sure. Yeah, sure. If I don't know if we, how much more time we have, but there's, there's a little riff that I wanted to, to take off on because it kind of ties together some of the various threads we've been pursuing in our talk for the last several minutes. Mm -hmm. you know, in the years of spiritual work that I've done, I've also dabbled, as I'm sure you have, in other traditions and looking at what else is in the world as far as, as, far as spiritual belief. So in the Jewish tradition that I was raised in, there's this concept called tikkun ha'olam, which that's Hebrew for taking care of the world or being the steward of the universe, if you will. You know, Christianity has as one of its foundational philosophies, charity. The Dalai Lama, whose Zen Buddhist practitioners are now being widely studied by Western scientists, which I think is awesome, has said, my religion is kindness. And even among like evangelicals here in the United States, there are people who are saying, wait a minute, God created this world and we are the stewards of it. 
my religion tells me that I need to be a conservationist. And then if you go to the Sufis, which are the Muslim mystics, one of their concepts is that their spiritual practice by teaching people who are both self-aware and charitable and taking care of the world, that their Sufi practice keeps the world from falling apart. And I think in many ways that's right, because I think the people who we try to be and the people who we teach to meditate become more self-aware. And because they're more self-aware, they're more aware of others. And it creates harmony in the world. So that's how... Absolutely. Yeah. In, a way, in a way, my meditation and my environmentalism really are, as I said, inseparable. And they're holding mm. the world together. I love it. I hope. It's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you for being here, Mark. Yeah, you know, we'll have you, to have you back again sometime. So it's great It'll sharing a little bit of time with you and hearing some of your uh, experiences. And we look, look forward to seeing more of your work as you continue to mm -hmm. create in the world. Yeah. And maybe I'll run into you again in Hawaii or somewhere else. <laughs> the Galapagos or somewhere, yeah. yeah on a reef in the Galapagos. Hey, yeah. Mark, what are you doing here? <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. And David, thank you for being here. Yeah. Great to be here with you guys. Thanks, guys. Uh, talking to you was just great fun and um, great satisfaction to get to express some of this stuff verbally for me. Thanks. Definitely. Yeah, thank you. All right, guys. All right. See you next time. See you next time. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Energy Matters podcast. That was Mark Stregel underwater photographer, spiritual teacher, meditator, former Apple employee of the 1980s. And he's just an all-around incredibly unique and diverse individual. He had some really great pieces of wisdom to share. And if you want to check out some more of his work, and if you want to see some of the images he does take, go to livingseaimages.com. And if you are ever in the Northern California, San Jose area, you can go take a class with Mark, sanjosepsychic.org. Check him out. Thank you so much for listening to Energy Matters, and we'll see you guys next time. Enjoy yourselves. You've been listening to the Energy Matters podcast with Cody Edner and David Gandelman. Brought to you by IntuitiveVision.net and GroundedMind.com. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud.com.